You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO Magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guests today are Cody Mosner and William Buckner. Cody is coming to us from Toronto, where he's currently visiting. Cody is an evolutionary anthropologist based at Texas A&M University, and his main research interest is in primate behavior. William Buckner is a student of evolutionary anthropology at UC Davis, and he's coming to us today from Davis, California. Will works at the Human Systems and Behavior Lab at Penn State University. And I'm coming to you, as usual, from Buenos Aires. Welcome, Cody and Will. Hey. Hey, happy to be here. Hey, lovely to have you here. So we're going to talk a little bit about evolutionary evolutionary anthropology, evolutionary psychology, evolutionary disciplines within social sciences. And I want to start by asking you, what do you feel are the most common misconceptions of your discipline? Uh, do you want to go first, Cody? Oh, I'll let you go ahead. I think, I think you have a lot of good opinions on this. First, I think it's important to distinguish between different types of evolutionary uh, social sciences. So evolutionary psychology is one approach to understanding the evolution of human behavior. It tends to focus pretty often on the psychological mechanisms that uh, lead to certain behaviors and how those mechanisms would have evolved, uh, how they might have been selected for and things like that. Um, I'm studying evolutionary anthropology and working for a lab that focuses on evolutionary anthropology, which is a bit broader than evolutionary psychology alone. I think it incorporates um, ideas from evolutionary psychology and from other evolutionary frameworks like behavioral ecology and cultural evolution and gene culture coevolution. So there's a lot of different frameworks that are useful to understand the evolution of human behavior. It's not just evolutionary psychology. So I think it's it's good to make those distinctions so we don't just assume that evolutionary psychology is, is one all there is or two that the you know there's certain papers in evolutionary psychology that may get the most media attention or things like that that are not even representative of that field much less the full body of work in the evolutionary social sciences mm. can you think of any papers that have recently garnered a lot of media attention that you disagree with or feel have give a kind of false impression of the of the field so i would say there, there's been a lot of replication attempts now which has which have changed a lot of the more prominent ideas in evolutionary psychology in particular so there was a greater focus on how mating how particularly female mating strategies might change with hormonal fluctuations and with birth control, uh, how their preferences for facial masculinity uh, are expected to change during different parts of the cycle and things like that. 
And a lot of that stuff is not looking as strong as it used to. And so there's, you know, different ideas about women seeking, you know, good genes, let's say, even if they're in a partnership that they may uh, cheat for good genes. And a lot of that work is not being supported necessarily. So I think it's good not to get too attached to necessarily any one idea in the field and to continue to take a not necessarily skeptical, but like one paper or a few papers is not enough. You have to keep digging and thinking about it and uh, replicating and things like that. I I feel we're pretty fortunate myself that evolutionary psychology has come a long way from where it was, at least. Because previously, a lot of the ones that would get media attention were ones that you could pretty much look at and on the nose be able to say, that's not real. That <laughs> that doesn't actually happen in humans. Uh, in terms of specific examples, uh, one of the best experiments ever made for understanding animal minds was this idea of the mirror test, which is uh, a test which is carried out to see if animals simply can recognize themselves in the mirror. Well, it's pretty much been the standard in animal behavior ever since to be like, okay, uh, does this animal believe that? Uh, it is a being, or does it, you know, have uh, some kind of a consciousness to it? Uh, and, and so you'll you'll apply the mirror test to these animals, and it, and it's a perfect experiment and everything. But the guy who designed it back in like 2002 or something came up with this crazy study uh, called uh, "Does Semen Have Antidepressant Effects?" And I mean, it, it it was just so insane on the nose that you know the media picked him up and carried it through and. You know, of course, there were some social issues for it, like uh, you're, you're telling people they shouldn't use condoms and things like that. But um, in reality, it was just one of these hypotheses where it's like evolutionary psychology went too far uh, with something that they uh, certainly couldn't test. But again, that's not necessarily representative of where the field is now. I think I think Will's right that uh, what's happening now is we have a lot more nuanced tests but uh, uh, getting them to replicate is is a huge issue, especially especially when so much of it is just done in psychology departments in Europe and the United States, uh, where, where, where you're you're testing it just on these European students. Yes, I I also discovered when I was uh, I was married to a, a science researcher that when they say the general public, what they mean is University of London undergraduates usually. <laughs> Um, I, I think the one that I heard had not been replicated was that women are more likely to wear red dresses um, during ovulation. During the ovulatory part of your cycle, you're more likely to reach for a red dress. Yeah, I've seen uh, something like that, as well as the idea that uh, people are supposed to view a woman in a red dress as being more attractive than if the dress was a different color. And it seems like a lot of that is not has not replicated um, later attempts. Just to dive straight into a finding that I have heard in the press a lot, and which seems extremely surprising to me, um, and that is the finding that I think it was one in five children born to married couples are illegitimate, are not the are not the offspring of their of the husband. Has that has that replicated? Is that a, a robust finding? Uh, no. So actually, the 
Um, so you're talking about like extra pair paternity. Yeah, no, those rates uh, across cultures even tend to be pretty low. I mean, even the most extreme examples, like the number, I think among the Yanomame who have a, they've had a lot of, you know, like wife capture and, and violent competition between men for, for women and things like that. Their extra pair paternity rate was like 12%, I think, in uh, Napoleon Chagnon's uh, study. When you look at industrialized societies, um, the rate of extra pair paternity is like, you know, one to five percent generally. It's very low. When you see the the one in five, those figures are, you know, maybe from particular paternity testing labs where the sample is, you know, people are going there in the first place because they suspect uh, the child is not theirs. In in that context, you can get higher rates. Like the one in five is, you know, certainly possible. But that's not a random sample. That's not a representative sample of society. It's a very specific um, sample. So overwhelmingly, extra pair paternity rates across cultures are surprisingly low, which in my view conflicts um, quite significantly with uh, you know, the Chris Ryan, a uh, sex at dawn idea about ancestral promiscuity. I think it conflicts with the, you know, the good genes um, idea, the, the idea that women will be in a relationship then swap to a man with with good genes short term, and then you know while maintaining the relationship as though that's the common or a, a particularly common strategy. And I think that's rare. It happens, of course, but but rare. So extra pair paternity surprisingly low, I think. And I want to ask about another another finding that I heard, but I read it again only in the popular press. So I don't know how accurate this is, but that. Uh, within semen, there are two types of sperm. There are swimmers and fighters. And uh, is this a com- is this complete bullshit? Uh, so the physiology. So th- this is not something I can say too much about. I mean, I know uh, I'm trying to remember some earlier uh, biology courses, but there there's different parts sperm, I think that one, I mean, you have the, the tail, right. That helps sperm swim up the, you know, tract. And you, I think you have different components that can contribute to, um, surviving the environment or moving faster up the tract. I'm not, I I can't speak too intelligently on this though, I'm afraid. So maybe Cody has a better, uh, answer. Uh, I haven't a clue. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I actually, I hadn't heard this one. I don't know, something like that. I think you might see a pattern of certain sperm knocking into the other ones, but I'm I'm not certain that uh, this would be some kind of adaptive behavior on the face. Uh, it might just be a result of the random movement that sperm makes as it moves around in its environment. Right. And the way it was covered, it sounded like each woman, you know, when you ejaculate into the woman, you leave behind, well, you have some people who are going to swim towards the egg and you leave behind also this cadre of fighters, this little army who are ready there to fight the ejaculate of other men. Um, (laughs) Okay, so perhaps that is not accurate. Yeah, I think that's one we we don't know enough to, you know, comment too much. If anybody listening would like to would like to comment, does know more about this and would like to comment, please do. Well, Will also wrote uh, a really interesting blog post on his blog, which was um, the human penis is remarkably boring because people will often say, oh, the uh, shape of the 
penis is such that uh, it will perm or, or pull the uh, competing sperm out of the woman. But when you actually compare the human penis to uh, polygynous primates or non-monogamous primates, uh, you know there there really isn't any special pattern that you see in the human penis. It's it's actually somewhat different from the others. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's actually a that's one example of an evo psych uh, some evo psych studies that got a lot of attention uh, in the media that are just poor, to be honest. And that's the uh, the uh, semen displacement hypothesis, they call it, where they'll, some of the early studies, they'd have an artificial vagina, vagina and an artificial penis and use like artificial sperm and then adjust the size of the, you know, the, the ridge of the, you know, penis at the end and see like, oh, when it's wider um, in comparison to just the shaft, uh, it, you know, can pull more semen out. So they do these experimental studies, and then they'll do other studies with very, you know, small samples of undergrads where they'll, you know, ask them about the last time they had sex and whether they think their their partner was cheating on them or something, and they'll say that oh, when when men think their partner was cheating on them, they they thrust deeper or something, and so that's supposed to be evidence of, you know, trying to displace another man's sperm or something. It's it's just kind of a stick with a hole in the end. I mean, it's not. If you want to displace things, you would have a little spatula or or something. Right. So exactly. So the the there's no analog for this idea in other primates, right? So like there's there's lots of other primates that have sperm competition and extensive sperm competition. Like chimps and bonobos have like five, like six times I think uh, larger testicle size than humans do, like a very significant amount. Um, and they don't have this like ridge. In fact, gorillas who are polygynous and who don't have much sperm competition at all have have a similar ridge actually. So it doesn't seem to be functional to displace semen. There's there's no support for that, and there's very little support for sperm competition playing a significant role in human uh, human evolutionary history. At least not since we split off from the ancestors of of chimps and bonobos. It seems like there's been you know, very little sperm competition. I was just going to say, in fact, some of these hypotheses tend to ignore other ones from uh, different animal literature. Like, for example, you always hear people say, oh, you know, the baby looks so much like his father. Uh, well, people will often say things like, oh, that means that uh, paternal certainty was so important in our lineage that... Uh, we had to we had to evolve a way to make sure that we knew who our infants were. Well, it turns out that the case is that it's probably more expensive to make your baby anonymous than to make it look like the father, which means that there is a release of pressure in the case of monogamy. So, so people people more often than not in the evolutionary past, uh, by this logic, were being more monogamous um, because. Uh, we aren't working to anonymize our babies in the same way that, say, uh, gorillas are. <laughs> oh, gorillas are working to anonymize their babies. That's the hypothesis. What can can you? What does that? What does that actually mean? I mean, I know that's a metaphor. Well, it just means that the well, the baby just doesn't, and its facial features and things that are important for recognition uh, look like the parent. Like I think one good example is say in uh, owl monkeys, where 
you can look at them and they have very distinct facial patterns and they have far more variation in the patterns on their faces than do most other New World monkeys. And part of the reason for this may be because there is no pressure to anonymize these primates because they're, they're extremely monogamous. So you're both skeptical about the thesis, which I've heard repeated quite a lot. I, I think Jeffrey Miller might also have subscribed to this and to some degree, at least that uh, humans are naturally polyamorous or um, promiscuous, sexually promiscuous species. And that, um, monogamy is a more recent is a more recent development which has come about because of societal and cultural factors like primogeniture and trying to ensure male inheritance lines yeah so um the i think those are kind of two different things a bit so there there is the idea about um ancestral promiscuity and it's i think it's particularly popularized by the book sex at dawn by chris ryan um, so this idea, in that book, he he talks about. May I may I ask, is that a serious book? Because I considered buying it, and then when I saw the reviews on Amazon, um, I decided against it because people reading it made it sound like a. How can I put it? Bullshit. I think <sighs> is the only way to to put it. But is that unfair? Um, I. I think it's wrong about basically everything, um, but I can't say that they didn't do any research, right? Or they didn't like that there was nothing in it that has some facts to it. Like they they do cite to, to their credit, um, they do something that I think a lot of um, evo evolutionary psychologists actually tend to fail on, which is. Um, insects at dawn, they actually cite a lot of different societies. They'll talk about anthropologists doing ethnography in different societies. Um, there's some data on, on mating from different societies in there. Um, and there's, there's primate comparisons too. So I think if you want to understand the evolution of human behavior, right, there's, there's aspects of that book that do it right. But the, the problem is there, it's a, it's a case of just being totally misled by the, some limited hmm. pieces of data and missing the broader picture. Um, so so I, I think it's overall bullshit, but I don't want to denigrate it too hard because it does a couple things I think are a bit, they're, they're more admirable than the norm. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, but so the thing is, they'll cite a lot of, um, they'll cite like the Aceh, hunter-gatherers of Paraguay, for example, um, who have beliefs about what's called partible paternity, which is the idea that a, a child can have multiple fathers. So the Ache have this belief and some other uh, Amazonian societies have this belief. And so like Chris Ryan and um, they write that, uh, you know, this, this kind of social system is evidence of an evolutionary history of promiscuity. But what they miss is that the Ache are still, they still have marriages and men still fight over paternity. And importantly, um, where there are co-fathers, um, for where there are Ache co-fathers, overwhelmingly they tend to be either brothers or males who are close friends. They're they're people who can um, share. They're the males who are more willing to share paternity in that case um, because they have a long-standing alliances or other relationships. And even still, 
um, there's fights about it. So uh, there's cases in the ethnographies on the Ache about a bro- two brothers who were sleeping with the same woman and they were co-fathers of the same kid and they almost kill each other fighting over it because they're, you know, they're jealous. Um, and even more importantly, I think with the Ache, children who have, who either don't have a father or who have more than, than two co-fathers. So, you know, a woman who's mating with multiple males, they have much higher mortality and males, cause, cause males don't want to invest when there's a high degree of uncertainty that the child is theirs. And that, that sort of trade-off is something that, uh, the ancestral promiscuity ideas really miss. You know, we have very helpless infants that need a lot of support and provisioning from males too, you know, not just mothers, but fathers. And so if, if women in the past were mating with, you know, a dozen different males the way chimpanzees do, um, that's not a good fitness strategy in most contexts because males aren't going to want to invest. Uh, so that you, you have to think about trade-offs in the past. And that's why the, the ancestral promiscuity idea is not a stable strategy that could develop really an entity society. I think we're a, a broadly a pair-bonded species. There's some polygyny um, in, in most societies. There had been some polygyny. But ev- pretty much everywhere, with some exceptions, most marriages and partnerships are monogamous and tend to be relatively long-term, not necessarily for life, but long-term pair bonds. Mm. Oh, yeah. And so and you also mentioned the uh, inheritance. So, yeah, there's some ideas about monogamy um, spreading and becoming like the the norm and not the norm, but universal. So no polygyny at all being tied to inheritance patterns of wanting to keep, you know, the resources within one lineage and one, you know, one child. Um, rather than dividing the resources, so in a that that and you know that's a legitimate line of research and makes a whole lot of sense, but it doesn't really conflict with the reality of of monogamous, you know, pair bonded partnerships being the norm, even in contexts where um, with like partible paternity. Um, and and yeah, and one more th- one more thing about the Aceh too, and other societies with partible paternity is that where women tend to be mating with a lot of with, with multiple males, like having multiple co-fathers, often those women themselves are nutritionally stressed, and this seems to be something that's not like a a you know taking control, you know, giving agency of of just wanting to sleep with a bunch of men, but it's it's often something akin to like prostitution, where they they they're just not getting the social support they need. And they'll, you know, trade sex for meat or something like that. Mm. So, you know, those are the kind of things. That's why you really need to look at the ethnography. And I think that's it's very important. Uh, what about polygamy in this context? Um, how widespread is it? And how is, how is it adaptive? And I have a specific question here also uh, from Twitter. Someone asks... Uh, Will, can you elucidate further as to why you disagree with David Buss's idea of patriarchy, um, which I'll ask you to define in a moment, and why it is that polygamy exists mostly when women provision most of the calories? This seems counterintuitive. Yeah, so so the first part of that question about polygyny. Um, now, for for most societies historically have allowed polygyny. So there's the ethnographic atlas, 
which is the largest, um, I believe still the largest database of cross-cultural ethnographic data available. And there's like 1,200 societies in there. And in something like 85% of societies, I think, there's some polygyny. Um, and that often leads people to say like, oh, we're a polygynous species. But it's misleading because in the majority of those cases, um, the amount of polygyny is like less than, it's going to be less than 20% of marriages. Um, I think the, the, the norm across cultures, the amount of, of marriages that are polygynous are going to be something like, like 10% across, you know, hunter gatherers and horticulturalists and pastoralists and agriculturalists. Um, and it's also a misconception that hunter gatherers have less polygyny than, um, you know, uh, sort of more complex societies. Um, it's actually hunter-gatherers and pastoralists and horticulturalists all tend to have sim pretty similar rates of polygyny, while the sort of um, industrialized nations today have very little polygyny, like historically low rates in terms of often banning um, polygyny. So the, the fitness interests involved with polygyny, though, where polygyny most often occurs um, as mentioned, it's where women procure most of the subsistence, most of the food. Um, and it's where there tends to be a, a bias in terms of inheritance, where, where males inherit a lot of wealth. Um, and it, it tends to be where marriages, particularly for women, are arranged. So polygyny benefits high-status males. It benefits wealthy families, Um fitness-wise for the, the male to have a lot of children, which benefits, you know, the lineage um, in fitness terms. It can benefit individual women some in some contexts. Like sometimes um, you can see polygynously married women have, uh, particularly that the, you know, first wives can have greater fertility um, and wealth you know, then in some cases, the, the monogamously married ones, if it's a really wealthy family. But overall, it seems to me polygyny is mostly the result of um, powerful lineages, powerful wealthy lineages, arranging their marriages for their sons to benefit the lineage. And female fitness interests are often not as taken into account. Like in, in, in these contexts, the girl is essentially a resource to be sold for wealth to a, an allied family. And then with that wealth, you use it to purchase a wife or wives for your son. So I think polygyny is pretty coercive most of the time. And that's why actually going to the, the next part of that question, um, David Buss thinks that the, the, the idea of patriarchy um, is due to female choice. That is, um, women choose males who are wealthy and high status and who can, you know, take power and stuff. Um, and this fuels patriarchy. This is, you know, so these are the males at the top and these are the ones being chosen by the women. And that to me does not make sense because in most societies historically, um, first marriages for girls were arranged. And that's still the case in a lot of small scale societies. Um, so it's not like women are choosing to be with a wealthy, powerful partner in that case. It's it's what happens is a young girl, you know, maybe 14 years old, is told by her family, you're marrying this this man. Um, so I think this is a, a problem I have with a lot of Evo psych work. And I, I like evolutionary psychology. Again, I draw on it um, 
all the time in different ways, but I think there's been a uh, consistent overemphasis on mating preferences across cultures. And, and this comes from, um, I think, a failure to recognize many of the more coercive aspects of human social organization, historically and still today. Um, so I, I think, you know, when you dealing with something like, like patriarchy, p- part of it, you know, the fact that, that men everywhere are more represented in political structures and high status, many high status pursuits, you can, you can think about um, aspects of, of the bus idea where that makes sense, right? So some, you know, women do, uh, men and women have th- certain things they value in partners and women, I think across cultures, tend to value a man who's of higher status, but that's not a sufficient explanation for the the forms of social organization we see across cultures. It has to be, you have to think about multiple types of explanations for this in different contexts where um, one explanation will have more power or less power than the other. Mm, thank you. Cody, did you want to add anything? Uh, no, that was pretty good. I, I did have a question for Will, though. Um, you said that uh, hunter-gatherers are about as polygamous as, uh, it, say, like pastoralists and stuff. I mean, does it scale the same? I mean, like, m- my intuition was always that if you did see, like, uh, polygyny in uh, hunter-gatherers, it was often, uh, it, it would be like a male would have two wives, but it, it usually didn't climb too much more than that, and it didn't, you know, break down you know, some guy with... 13 wives, then there's a guy with eight, and then there's a bunch of people with two, like. Right. So that, so that it's true that even in most pastoralist societies, I'm, I think I'm, I'm not positive. I should look at this, but it, usually you're not seeing men with like five or 10 wives. It's, it's like two or three, mm-hmm. um, because it takes a lot of wealth to support And actually, this is, I didn't answer the last part of this question, but this goes back to why um, female subsistence is so important to understand polygyny, which is that where males procure most of the the resources and the subsistence, there's a lot of pressure to procure enough to even support one wife in some contexts. So for like Arctic hunter-gatherers, they would sometimes have both polygyny and polyandry because they were almost entirely reliant on male hunting and male uh, like fishing and uh, things like that. So, you know, the best, the very best hunters would have like, could have like two wives and then like poorer hunters or like males who, who just couldn't hunt as much and things like that would sometimes share. Uh, now, um, there are hunter-gatherer societies, even nomadic, you know, mobile hunter-gatherer societies, where men have upwards of thirty wives. Um, huh. Yeah, there. So the the Tiwi of uh, North Australia is a good example of this. There, the vast majority of food was collected by the women, um, and they also had a matrilineal system. Um, and the way it worked was that the the males would um, form alliances with each other and sort of bargain with each other to trade their female relatives to each other as wives. Um, so like a man would promise like his unborn, his sister or his, you know, his sister who was, you know, like still even in the womb or something or a, a niece or a sister who's a you know child to another man in return for that man's niece or sister or something like that. Um, 
And it was uh, this system has also been called uh, gerontocratic polygyny because um, males who were like under 30 would have no wives. They hadn't made enough the alliances and the agreements and stuff. But by the time a man was like 50 or 60, he could have you know 30 wives. Um, and the way this system worked was that the women would collect a lot of the food and would develop a surplus. And first wives in this context were often older and particularly good foragers and good at managing the household. And it was almost like an economic unit where this household of a very old man and his, you know, 30 wives and sons and stepsons and daughters and things like that um, produce a lot of the food. They throw feasts. The man gets a lot of status and prestige from it um, and things like that. So I think um, back to your question with pastoralists, I definitely think more often you're going to see bigger polygynous units than you would normally see in most hunter-gatherer contexts. Um, but in terms of the amount of marriages that are polygynous, like, you know, the 12% mm -hmm. of marriages being polygynous, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, it's it's 12% uh, of men in, in polygynous units or something like that. That seems to be pretty consistent. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of diversity there outside of modern agricultural populations and like nation states, which are uniquely lacking in polygyny. Do, do the Tiwi have that uh, weird system of uh, like land resource holding that you see in a lot of these Australian groups? Um, With different families having um, sole access to pieces yeah. of land? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, that's actually not that uncommon. I mean, even in, uh, I think even the, like the Johansi Kung in Africa, who are very mobile, low population density uh, hunter-gatherers have their own system of, of land rights that is tied to like kin groups and things like that. Um, so you have, so, your, yeah. you have your own turf as a family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is this is your place for gathering berries and hunting things. Yeah, exactly. I, I heard that apart from up in, in uh, uh, this is perhaps slightly, slightly off topic, but I am going to go straight back onto topic again. But I heard that with the exception of Arctic regions, really, we should talk about gathering hunting. Um, I, yeah. I remember reading this in Jared Diamond that he went, uh, he lived with a hunter-gatherer tribe um, in Papua New, New Guinea uh, for a number of years. And he said that there, was many, there were many stories told about amazing hunts and many legends and much boasting but most days they would catch a couple of toads and they would come home and the, the women would have gathered, you know, dug up X number of roots, etc. And it was basically a vegan diet with a few little bits of a few little bits of meat in in between here and there. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> with the diamond example, um, I, I suspect that's a horticulturalist um, population, but there are definitely uh, hunter-gatherer societies where most of the food is procured gathering, particularly by the women. Um, but it's not the case, so people say this sometimes, but it's not the case that it's only in the Arctic where, you know, hunting is, is dominant. So like the Aceh, going back to the Aceh in Paraguay, um, about 80% of their food comes from meat, meat hunted by males. And, you know, and that's part of why the children of better hunters 
tend to have better survival. The hunters can procure more, more meat for them uh, and support them nutritionally and things like that. Um, so broadly, meat is about uh, like if you just look globally at across small scale societies or across hunter gatherer societies, um, meat is about ends up being about half of what is eaten, and then you know often plant resources and fish and things like that can make up the other half. Um, sometimes meat may be a little lower, so it could be thirty, you know, thirty percent like game, twenty percent fish, and then fifty percent gathered foods. Um, but I, I think it's tough because one, it's there's differences in how things are measured. So sometimes they'll measure weight, they'll measure caloric count, they'll measure you know protein, and depending on what you measure, the numbers can change a lot. Another problem is that the hunter gatherers today are in environments that are uniquely lacking in game compared to our evolutionary history. So there's a book by this uh, anthropologist, Lewis Binford, uh, Con- Constructing Frames of Reference. Uh, it's a long title. I can't remember the whole thing. But he talks about how modern hunter-gatherers are in environments with particularly lacking in ungulates, like, uh, you know, hooved, uh, like cows and stuff, or deer and um, cows, I think. So because they've been pushed out by agro-pastoralist societies of, mm. of the more mm. desirable. Yeah. So it, it's, it'd be a mistake to generalize too heavily from some of the patterns we see in modern hunter-gatherers. Um, I suspect meat was much more important, you know, 40,000 years ago in many hunter-gatherer societies than it is in, in many of them today. But meat is still important. I think it, you know, it would be a mistake to lean too hard on the gathering or too hard on the hunting or fishing today because patterns have been disrupted and it's actually surprisingly uh, equal contribution between meat and, and fishing and hunting. That's what I find so interesting about these uh, narratives about hunter-gatherers being these uh, communistic sharing peoples who, you know... The, they're, they're going to always rip the shirt off their back for the other person. You know, it, desperate times call for these sort of measures, obviously. No, that That's exactly and, true. And I think that's a really important point, not just for hunter-gatherers, but, but every everyone really, is that a, a lot of cooperation is by necessity. It's by desperation. It's by need. It's not you know, it's, it's easy to kind of romanticize it, as you said, and, and be like, they're, you know, they'll, they'll give everything away because they're just, they're so, they love each other so much. And it's just this sharing idea and it imposes an inhuman level of like restraint and of just lacking self-interest in a way that does not make sense to, you know, I mean, people have their own individual needs and wants and preferences, and they're not just going to constantly put them in denial for other people. Um, so yeah, people, they, they like hunter gatherers do share a lot of food, you know, relative to, to many other societies. And particularly for us today, the amount of sharing they do um, is, is outsized, but it's a lot of it's based on need. It's based on demand sharing and, you know, like one of the, the most desired goods uh, for the Hadza and for many other hunter-gatherer populations are things like pants, because when they have pockets, they can hide some food. You know, there's plenty of cases of anthropologists going to hunter-gatherer societies where it's just constant 
demands for food and they just don't have enough food. And some anthropologists will even set their camps outside of you know the community further away because of the constant demands for food. Mm. And it can be a source of actually conflict between, so like a Napoleon Chagnon got, got criticized by a different anthropologist for allegedly not participating in food sharing. Um, but he describes this in his book where every time he would eat, they, they would ask for food. And it's understandable, you know, that people are hungry, they want food, but obviously an anthropologist can't come in there with a supply of food for everyone and feed, you know, the entire population. So like, it's people, I, I don't like the tendency to romanticize what are very difficult situations and th that, that are mm -hmm. not enviable and, you know, every people have their struggles and it's not, I don't think it's a good thing to just give such a selective and wishful thinking kind of portrayal. So I do want to come back at, at some stage to um, human sexuality, but I think this leads very nicely into another topic, which was um, that recently Steven Pinker has been criticized by, I'm sorry, what was the name of that, the author of that article about um, claiming that hunter-gatherer societies were largely non-violent. Yeah, it's by Richard B. Lee, Hunter-Gatherers Hunter -Gatherers and Human Evolution, New Light and Old Debates. And Lee criticizes Steven Pinker um, for his thesis that violence has declined long-term over the course of human history. And uh, Lee suggests that hunter-gatherer societies are largely peaceable and non-violent with only a few exceptions, and that violence began as a result of a move towards agriculture and sedentary living, and that violence arises as a result of um, spatial overcrowding when everyone is competing for the same resources. Lee claims that when hunter-gatherers have a conflict, they just move away to a different place. They just kind of wander off, as opposed to if they're all, um, if they're all res if you're resident in the same place and your only way of one of one of your few ways of dealing with conflict is violent, is violence. And um, I think Lee talks about this. He calls it a U shape, which is very confusing. It's more like a kind of inverted. Mount, like a mountain shape if you plot the graph he says that we began um, with non-violent peaceful societies and then we had a rise in violence um, with the beginnings of agriculture um, and um, then we had a drop going towards the present day and I think I believe you're critical of that thesis would you like to say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, Richard Lee is an anthropologist who did field work among the uh, Johansi uh, Kung in um, the Kalahari Desert. There are hunter-gatherer population there. And he's been in the field of anthropology for about 50 years now. And he's been arguing essentially the same thing, which is that... Um, Hunter-gatherers have a lot of sharing, which is true, 
Um, they have balanced gender relations, he says, which is totally false. Um, and that they, um, yes, as you said, very little violence and particularly little to no warfare. Um, now, when you look at some modern hunter-gatherer populations, like the Hadza, let's say, the Hadza are an East African hunter-gatherer population with uh, very little territoriality and no warfare and things like that. Um, the, pop, the modern hunter-gatherer populations that don't go to war and have low rates of violence overwhelmingly neighbor very powerful state societies or powerful um, pastoralist or agro-pastoralist societies. So one thing that um, theorists of warfare and, you know, so Richard Wrangham is a, is a primatologist who's, who's studied the evolution of warfare, and he came up with what's called the imbalance of power hypothesis, which is the idea that people will, people, um, and also chimpanzees, will engage in violent conflict when they have the imbalance of power on their side. Um, and they won't do so. They'll be less likely to attack when the imbalance of power favors the opposing side. So you look at modern hunter-gatherers neighboring societies that are substantially more um, populated and with more technology and with you know, f settlements and, and a lot of weapons and stuff. Of course, they're not going to go to war with them, right? They, it, it would make no sense. But when you look at hunter-gatherer societies in the past that neighbored other hunter-gatherer societies, there is a ton of ethnographic evidence of conflicts over borders, of wife capture raids, of long-term blood feuds, of, of you know, uh, ritualized line battles, um, of headhunting, of things like that. So I, I don't want to say that people are inherently... Um, chronically violent with no self-control, right? That's not true. Or that hunter-gatherers are just chronically violent, right? That's not true. The, the point is that there are contexts where violence benefits one side or an individual, and there are contexts where violence doesn't benefit you. So modern hunter-gatherers have been forced into you know, the, the farthest, the, the deepest regions of forests and deserts, and they neighbor societies that have been you know, taking their land and pushing them out for centuries, there's not room for them to engage in strategic intergroup conflict like they would have in the past. So Richard Lee's ideas about this, and there's other anthropologists who agree with him, like Douglas Fry, I think they're very mistaken because they don't think about the the behavioral ecology of, of it, the, the, you know, the evolutionary game theory of like, when is conflict beneficial? When's it not? And when you think about that, the idea that hunter gatherers would just always run away in the past, it makes no sense, right? If one side is running away, <laughs> why would the other side run away? They're not going to run away. Mm -hmm. They'll, they'll stay there. And so if both sides want a piece of land and if one side has the power advantage, right, that you'd expect them to stay and even attack the other side. If they're evenly matched, this is its own sort of conflict because they might feel like they can stay, you know, and take the land. Like you're not going to see two sides coming in conflict, both, you know, immediately sprinting away from each other and leaving that land that they previously wanted alone. Right. So I think it's really just important to think about how things are different today. Um, and, and I think that's what's misled. Right. 
Uh, I mean, to be fair to Lee, some of the evidence he cites is skeletons. Uh, So he looked at skeletons from early cultures and looked to see how many of them seem to have um, markings of knife wounds. Um, So he was doing a kind of, like in the series Bones, he was doing a a, um, post-mortem analysis and making some guesses as to how they died. Yeah, so he he's citing a paper um this is this, the paper's actually from the one of the anthropologists i mentioned uh douglas fry's uh book on like the evolutionary history of peace um and the the paper he's talking about about the the skeletal rates of injury is is a it's not it doesn't show what he says it does because it's basically just a collection of references to archaeological sites where humans were found um, and during, like during the Paleolithic, and it goes by which of these papers, which of these, you know, in, for which of these sites did they mention violence? Now, this is a very flawed method because they don't bother to check whether the material at the sites without violence actually had enough material to make an accurate determination if violence occurred. So, for example, if someone dies by a blow to the head, right, uh, cranial trauma, and you you find a full set of bones, a full skeleton, except the cranium, you might say, oh, there was no violence here. I have a nearly right. full body except the cranium. So the one piece you need to find violence is not there. And so a, a lot of, a lot of uh, archaeological sites, a lot of the sites that are going to be in that sample, they're not containing full, you know, craniums they're not containing like the axial skeleton and the vertebrae and stuff where you might see um you know wounds from spears and stuff um it's not a a sample that one can derive any sort of meaningful inferences from in my view it's very bizarre too because i mean they admit in the paper they're like most of these are isolated finds of just a few bones if you go far enough back, I mean, you, you'll find evidence of cannibalism in Homo erectus, in, uh, in, in Neanderthals. You'll, you, you'll, you'll find a record of uh, what were archaic humans killing each other for food. Um, and there's been a few studies saying that, you know, eating each other really isn't all that uh, nutritionally beneficial. Um, but it, it's like... In phylogenetics, we have this idea of parsimony. Like, you, you have to be able to explain things in the least amount of steps. And so for them to explain that uh, we went from, you know, killing each other through cannibalism on a pretty large scale and then uh, peaceful all of a sudden and then violent again, I mean, you have two character changes right there rather than just saying this has been recurrent throughout. mm, mm. I, I want to ask both of you, this may be a, a naive question, but do you think that there that violence is simply an undesirable trait or whether it may be a an unfortunate side effect of uh, some other trait that we might actually wish to preserve? So there's been a... There's, um, I'm thinking of this in a... In the political context of, there's been a lot of um, talk lately, well, I think there always is about toxic masculinity, um, which is connected with, uh, I think, undisputed fact that men are on average more violent than women. 
Um, and this not to suggest that most men are violent, but given that someone is violent, what's the likelihood that that violent person is a man rather than a woman? Um, I think that there is um, there's an assumption that this is just something bad. And I'm not trying to imply that there's anything good about violence itself. But do you think that it may be connected with other traits that are beneficial, that it may be an inescapable side effect of something we we wouldn't want to lose? So, for example, if I could wave a magic wand and stop uh, stop people from being violent, completely eliminate violence from human nature, do you think that that would be a wise thing to do or might it have unforeseen consequences? I think I think nothing would get done, um, it, it, which is kind of unfortunate because the reason you have violence is for when you can't coordinate an ideal solution to the problem. Um, and, and, and violence violence is necessary in a lot of these contexts. Um, it, you're not always going to come to an agreement with someone, but the idea is that violence is you know, it's your willingness to spend yourself to get this thing. Um, and, and so, like, if, if we were to just get away with violence, which would be really nice, um, we, we'd be left with a lot of coordination problems of people sitting around trying forever and ever to figure out how they're going to do things. Um, that's not to say that you have to use violence to get your way or that we can't get rid of it, but... Um, I, I think I think it's definitely been beneficial in the past and even now, I mean. Yeah, it's tough. Um, I think it's really tough to answer that question um, because – so, like, it, I, I'd have to wonder what sort of violence you're talking about. So every society, to some degree, is built on the idea that if you go around, un, you know, uh, unjustly killing people or committing rape or doing horrible things, you will be, you know, taken somewhere, you know, you'll, you'll be executed, you'll be thrown in prison. You need some level of violence to threaten um, against less sociable types of violence. Um, and you also have the issue of different groups competing violently. So in, in the context of waving a magic wand to get rid of violence, like it's hard to imagine what that would look like. I guess that would mean no no crime too, right? Because no violent crime. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to even I I I don't know that it's possible to conceive of what a society without violence would look like because every society in human history was built in part as a way of regulating violence, regulating with, within community violence, regulating uh, how to protect yourselves from out-group violence or, or engage in violence against the, the outside group. Um, so violence is like, it, it's like asking what would humans look like without sex or without, I don't know, any, uh, any number of sort of intrinsic, without humor mm. or fear. Mm. Or, it, it's, it's just such a deep part of, of, human societies 
So I'd like to return to the question of sex a little bit. And um, there were a couple of interesting questions which people on Twitter raised. And one was that uh, someone asked, and this is maybe more of a question for Cody, whether there is any other species in which the males control female mating choices or attempt to control female mating choices to the same extent as we do, and how this might affect evolution, given that um, uh, much, much of evolution among mammals is driven by female mate choice. So let me, let me get this right. So they're saying that human, that, that men... Uh, Ah, uh, yes, that's correct. Choice. And we were talking about this. So in polygamous societies, for example, um, while you might think that women are choosing to be polygamous and they're choosing to be co-wives to high-status men, in fact, they generally have very little choice in the matter. These are uh, young girls being forced into arranged marriages very frequently. So there is a lot of control here being exercised over people's uh, make choices, especially women's make choices. There's one uh, especially gnarly example in uh, homodryous baboons. Uh, they have these kind of, uh, this, this form of social organization, which they call um, uh, harems. Um, I, I, I guess, I guess we really shouldn't be using that term anymore, but um what happens is these males and and they're huge males, these bright red faces. They look terrifying. Uh, uh, they'll raid other groups um, uh, of homodryas baboon, and, and they'll they'll take their females, uh, e even little juveniles, um, with the idea of they're going to take the juvenile and raise it to be part of its harem, which they'll eventually mate with, and they enforce. Uh, what females can do pretty strictly. I mean, um, they, they have all kinds of forms of uh, uh, neck biting because uh, the baboons have very sharp canines, um, just uh, beating up on the females. And, and you look at the females and they, and, and they look like terribly gnarly with like ripped off fur and stuff like that. Most of it is done by the males or uh, by the females to each other because they can't really have uh, too much friendly relationships in these consorts. There, there are some other examples. Um, so uh, orangutans, um, and this is a very unfortunate one, orangutans are known to have forced copulation, uh, which in, uh, in human terms we would call rape. Um, it, it, and this is, this is a pretty stable strategy for a lot of uh, male orangutans because what you see is one male orangutan will go on to become uh, very large within his territory. Um, th these are the big orangutans you see with these huge face flaps and things like that. Um, but but really, there can only be one of these per you know uh, territories, and they don't overlap with each other. But what you get are females within his territory that are moving around. But following those females are males that did not go on to become this larger form of male. Uh, they're still uh, parading around with these uh, juvenile uh, phenotypes, 
that the females obviously do not prefer. Um, and so the only way that they get to mate with the females is through forced copulations. Um, and uh, what, what was the second part of the question? I'm forgetting now. What effect this might have on evolution, given that much of evolution is in mammals is driven by female mate choice? I, I, I mean, of, co- of course it's driven by female mate choice, but um, I, I mean, there's, there's, there's more than one strategy a lot of times. And I think, I think that's very highlighted with the uh, orangutan example. I mean, I think there's a really good uh, quote by Jeffrey Miller, though, in terms of uh, uh, female mate choice, which is that uh, females won't stop putting stupid ornaments on males' heads, talking about like mooses and, and deers and things like that. Yeah, I, I think that I, I remember reading in Jared Diamond's book, Why Sex why is sex fun? Which, as I think Richard Dawkins rather ironically points out, it's a book that never actually answers the question in its title. But um, Diamond says that um, humans have exceptionally large penises among primates. And that is entirely the result of uh, female mate choice. Uh it might be, but I mean, uh, human females also have unique pelvises amongst the primates. Um, but what, what were you going to say, Will? Right. So, so yeah, Diamond says that the human penis is uniquely large, right? Um, yeah. So that's not true. That's actually based on old data, and this was actually another problem with sex at dawn. So in that book, they show a graph of penis size of chimpanzees, uh, bonobos, gorillas, and humans. And the problem is the penis data for like all the other apes is when they're flaccid. And the data for humans is when they're erect. So this gives a very skewed um, perspective on penis size. Yeah, and so um, this primatologist, Alan Dixon, has written a couple books on like sexual selection and um, does a lot of really good comparisons with human like penile morphology compared to other primates. And actually, the human penis is about average for a primate of our body size. It uh, penis size scales with body size um, pretty linearly, not completely, but but pretty linearly. And and uh, the human penis is not that different from from chimps and bonobos. Um, Mm -hmm. in terms of its erect size. It might be a little thicker, but there's not good um, penis circumference data. So it's, it's, it's unsure, but the, a lot of Evo psych ideas um, and diamond's not an evolutionary psychologist, but this is an, an error of his too, is, is just placing so much importance on mate choice affecting human physiology and behavior and things like that. And, you know, they're, they're not wrong that mate choice has played a role, but it's just so strongly overemphasized that it leads to these kind of confusions um, based on, on weak data. And then when you get broader data, you see it's just not supported. In the run-up to this podcast, we were talking uh, among ourselves a little bit about some of what I feel are abuses of um, evolutionary psychology, anthropology, by people who want to advocate a return to a traditional lifestyle 
or who have a very often very misogynistic, although occasionally misandric point of view that they want to put across. And I, I have people who just put an enormous emphasis on mating and mate choice, governing every aspect of human motivation. So every interaction between two women, um, in the cases that, that I come across, or maybe also between two men, is um, intrasexual competition for mates. And every sort of attraction that a woman has to a man is hypergamy, is her being attracted to his wealth and status in order to get into the right pecking order um, among our primate groups. And I was, I wondered whether you also had some comments on um, one example of this, which was the much quoted remarks by Jordan Peterson when he was talking about women wearing lipstick at work. And he said, and Peterson said it in a musing way, so not necessarily, it's not absolutely clear from the clip that he was advocating a particular policy here. He was more ruminating, but he said, um, maybe men and women can't work together because of sexual attraction. And... Um, when women say that they don't want to be sexually harassed at work, I'm not quoting his exact words, but it's quite close to this, and yet they wear lipstick, they are sending mixed messages because uh, lipstick implies that you, a proximity to orgasm, he described it. It mimics the symptoms of being close to orgasm. Do you want to get into that whole thorny I was going to call it a thorny minefield full of worms. Let's mix our metaphors thoroughly here. Jordan Peterson is a good person for his his therapy books, uh, for for his writing on postmodernism and things like that. But I mean, he I don't think by any means that he is an evolutionary psychologist, you know. And I, I think I'm going to go with Will on this one that you know this this idea that mate choice is, you know, the first thing that pops up in someone's mind or that the reason why people do things uh, is because, first and foremost, some conscious or subconscious decision on their part. A lot of things just get done by copying. I mean, like, women wearing lipstick in the workplace is probably because women wear lipstick in the workplace. And it sounds kind of tautological, but when you think about just the way that the culture operates, uh, you're just going to do what everyone else is doing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there would be any sexual connotation to a woman doing that. In the mm, mm. And of course, if everyone else is doing it, it becomes a norm and could even be expected or required by the workplace because it comes exactly. to be the way that you expect a woman to look when she's at work. So it comes to to signal uh, professionalism to be made up. Yeah, exactly. It's something of a cultural construct. Yeah, I think it's a it's a tough. So th there's different ways of looking at something like that. I mean, on the one hand, like when someone gets dressed up in any fashion, right, like a man in a suit or a nice collared shirt or something like that, 
there's as as Cody mentioned, there's elements of like social norms to do with that, right? Like you go to the office, you're supposed to look presentable in a particular way. With something like lipstick or makeup or even I don't know, tailored particularly tailored clothing to emphasize certain traits. I mean, they can be tied to ideas of attractiveness. Um, I wouldn't discount the idea of that, but that's also different from motivations that are maybe tied directly to fitness interests. So someone wanting to look attractive does not necessarily have to be with the goal of actually mating with someone. It can be wanting to look appealing or attractive because this is that's beneficial for you socially or it's a good you know that's the impression you want to give in terms of your identity or the groups you associate with or things like that so there's a, a lot of ways of thinking about what people signal and how they signal it and what's their intent in signaling it and it's it's really never a good idea to stop at the first explanation that makes sense you got to kind of think like, okay, this this aspect makes sense, right? People want to look good, but that is never going to be the total explanation because people can want to look good in very different ways, or they can want to look good without it being tied to any intent or act of mating with someone new or finding a new partner or anything. Uh, yeah. I, I, I guess what I was trying to say is that I don't think that women are walking into work uh, with lipstick on with the intent to say... Oh, can't wait to seduce the bosses or something. You know, like, I don't think that's what's going on at all. <laughs> on a related topic to do with sexuality, there's a question uh, here on Twitter about homosexuality, but I'd like to put my own question first, which is a bit more general. I find it still interesting and mysterious to me as a lay person with very little knowledge of this subject as to how we as a species have evolved to have a lot of exclusive, um, or a lot, exclusive homosexuality is something that is common in our species and has presumably always been so, or uh, always, as, as far as we can extrapolate back into the past, this is not a recent phenomenon. And I'm interested in what the evolutionary background of that is. I know there are several different theories about this, and just to be clear, I think this is a completely morally neutral phenomenon. And in fact, it may have some positive moral valence. And I wrote a science fiction story, which is called The Natural, which was actually about a set in a society where they discovered a way to eliminate homosexuality or several generations before the story takes place that society had discovered a way to eliminate homosexuality from the population. And at the time when the story takes place, they have decided to bring it back. And I won't go into the details of the story uh, too much, but just to make it clear that I don't have, I don't feel that there's really any ethical background to this question. I just find it interesting from a from an abstract intellectual point of view. And I wondered if you had some views on that. Cody, do you want to go first? Um, so, so specifically, what, uh, what do you want me to hone in on? Yeah. Um, how do, do you have any theories as to how exclusive homosexuality evolved in our species? 
what the fitness benefits were, whether oh, yeah. it's a side effect of something else. I know that Richard Dawkins has voiced a theory called the sneaky fucker theory um, about bisexuality, certainly, and um, that that uh, certain men fooled other men into believing that they were gay and therefore they left them alone with the women and then when they were alone with the women, they mated with them. Um, well, then. But... <laughs> so I, I, um, I wonder what, uh, what your whether you have any theories, ideas about this, hypotheses that you think seem more, more plausible. There, there's a few, um, and I think, I think this is going to be one of the most interesting research questions of, I don't know, the next decade or so, uh, because we're finally getting to a place, I think, where we might feel comfortable enough approaching this question. There's a few ways of, of uh, looking at it. Um, just last year, they found uh, four different gene variants uh, associated with homosexuality. Now, you can have these gene variants as a heterosexual um, and still end up being a heterosexual, but for exclusive homosexuals, meaning that you incur a fitness loss. You Ideally, you never have children. Um, there are these four gene sites. Now, there's this idea that this might be a side effect, that it's not necessarily adaptive. And really, I think maybe less than 5% of the population is gay. The idea is that these four gene variants increase your sexuality, um, even in heterosexuals, uh, because they found that heterosexuals that have these variants um, have more sexual partners than those that don't. Mm. So something of a side effect. Now, of course, there's another one, which uh, it's kind of an old theory. And um, I guess now that we have uh, more genetics, we might might not be able to back it up as well, um, but it was something that uh, the, the uh, entomologist E.O. Wilson mentioned in his book, Sociobiology. And, you know, you, you can take this with a grain of salt because it gets kind of very uh, uh, speculative, but uh, in, in many ant societies, you have sterile castes, uh, meaning ants that will never reproduce, but nonetheless are getting uh, benefits to their genes uh, from uh, how the, how the queen does and how their sisters do. I think Eva Wilson proposed that uh, homosexuals might be this uh, beginning of a sterile case themselves, uh, where uh, brothers are uh, sacrificing their own want to have children uh, in order to uh, protect resources of their brothers. Um, I don't I don't know how that might work out. There's been some ideas that uh, homosexuality is not genetic, it's epigenetic, because we have what are called birth order effects for it, meaning that uh, the, the youngest males are the ones that are most likely to be homosexual. And the idea there is that uh, each time a male is uh, born, he, uh, I guess, in a sense, poisons uh, the maternal environment so that when the next male gets born, uh, he has more of a likelihood of uh, being born homosexual due to maybe some nutrition deficiency or something like that. Um, so I, I don't think we're, we have an answer to the question yet, um, but... 
a lot of it is going to hinge on whether or not this is uh, just uh, something genetic happening at a low proportion in the population, or if it's epigenetic, um, like I said, with the birth order effect thing. Devising a theory of its origins is kind of dependent on those two explanations. What's really interesting about this question, too, is that there's it's interesting to think about how homosexuality exists across cultures. And this is not something that's been investigated too heavily, but there's been new research on this in the last couple of years. And what's kind of fascinating is that, so they call it male androphilia, right? Male, male, same-sex behavior. Um, the most common form across cultures is not two just gender typical males um, in a relationship. It's actually one male becomes uh, like a, th a third gen fills a third gender role, like transgender, where they're biologically, you know, um, born male, and then end up filling a female closer to a female gender role, and then being with a like a sex gender typical man as their partner. Um, and this is the most common form across cultures, where um, there's data on like homosexuality. And actually, uh, the sex gender congruent, what they call that kind of homosexuality is pretty rare across societies and like the standard cross-cultural sample. So thinking about, it's a complicated topic because it is wrapped up in very complicated ways with social roles. And it's often unclear how much coercive pressure exists to force it in one direction or the other. So like I've written about um, men's cults quite a bit and some of these men's cults enforce a kind of obligate homosexuality on younger males where the young males will be forced to suck the penis of the older males or will be kind of like sort of raped. And it's not that this is an exclusive homosexual behavior. This is something they're forced to do and then they'll grow up and have wives and stuff. Um, ancient Sparta had similar um, aspects to this. So I, I think looking at the cross-cultural stuff, in most societies, there does seem to be cases of people engaging in male-male, you know, so this has been focused on males in particular, but engaging in male-male same-sex behavior. But usually it's it's the, the transgendered form. And, and I think a lot of this also has to do in a cross-cultural context with economic relationships. So it, it's not clear to me, particularly in, in situations where there's marriage exchanges of resources, if you have a third gender male who, who fills a, you know, is a trans female, let's say, um, they may still be able to participate in marriage exchanges or they'll fill the, the sort of female economic subsistence role of, of, you know, gathering or something like that. So it's a very complicated topic trying to divorce like what is someone who's expressing natural preferences what are more coercive aspects that they're sort of forced into because they're gender atypical in their society and may not be considered well fit for a male um for for the male typical sex role um so yeah i mean the, the, you know the genetic stuff you mentioned is very complicated the social aspects are very complicated the fact that there's some societies where there doesn't seem to be evidence of same-sex behavior um, so like the, the Frank Marlowe is an anthropologist who asked, there are? no, so yeah, um, Frank Marlowe, this, oh, yeah, go this ahead. Sorry. I'm just, I'm just surprised by that. 
Yeah. Well, so I, I think there's a reason for it. Um, so Frank Marlowe is this an anthropologist who did field work among the Hadza hunter-gatherers in East Africa, and he asked them about um, male same-sex behavior. Um, like, have, have do any of you know about two males engaging in sex and stuff? And they all said no, that they had no concept of it um, or didn't understand it or it wasn't something that, that seemed um, – to have existed. Now, if you assume the the rate of say male same sex behavior is relatively low, uh, you know, which is a, a reasonable inference, um, at maybe I don't know two percent, three percent, you know, whatever it is, in a very small society, you know, hods of bands are going to be like thirty people, and then they live in a larger network of maybe eight hundred people that they may you know, eventually encounter or a few hundred people that they may eventually encounter. Um, it's certainly possible. They will never knowingly, if, if you're say a gay male, you know, you feel like attracted only to males in that circumstance, you may never encounter a, another man who you can tell has the same, you know, urges as you do, right? Like there's a very difficult coordination problem there in a small population, particularly when it's not the norm and when it's a behavior like sex that is uh, hidden, right? It's something people don't usually do openly. It, it can be, yeah, it, it, can, it may not, you may not ever have an opportunity to express that, you know, instinct or feeling. Um, so that's why a lot of the research, like where you see uh, the, the same sex male sex roles where it's sex gender congruent, these tend to be in larger, like modern industrialized nations and agricultural populations where there's enough people and enough ability to interact with other people that you can have this identity where people can, you know, group up together and associate and date and things like that. And that's not going to be an option and for particularly for many smaller scale populations. Mm -hmm. Why do you think uh, homophobia is so widespread? And so, so many people have such a strong reaction to this because one would think from a, a sort of evolutionary point of view, if I'm a straight man and other men are gay, I should be happy about that because that's fewer competitors and rivals. Yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing, throwing ideas out there. Yeah, it's a tough, um, it's a tough question. So some ideas I've seen about it are sort of coalitionary in the sense that like, if you're a male who's, playing sports or, you know, as part of a cooperative hunt or in warfare or something. Um, the idea is that you may not want, um, you know, males there around you who may be interfering with you sexually or things like that. I mean, I, I don't know. That's just one proposal I've seen. It, it's tough for me to say because that's something that's, that's very culturally contingent, right? Homophobia. Because like like the, the men's cult societies that, I, that I've written about are some of the most patriarchal societies you can imagine. They're very aggressively hostile towards women. They, they control they'll, – they'll threaten women with, with gang rape if they see the sort of male secrets in these cults. But in this context, there is you, – you'll see the, the male, male uh, homosexuality, right? It's not – there's not homophobia about it. It's actually forced. Mm-hmm. So where people – it's it's almost like where people can exercise their preferences more. I don't know. Maybe I don't. know. It's tough to say. It's tough to say. We also need to distinguish between homosexual behavior and homosexuality. 
Um, yeah. So, like Will was mentioning in the case of um, uh, these men's cults where the, the, the young males have to, you know, perform this sexual act, you, you could say, oh, that's homosexual, but that that's not homosexuality per se. Right. Uh, that's also a mistake that a lot of evolutionary biologists make uh, trying to identify homosexuality in the animal kingdom. It's actually uh, rather rare outside of sheep um, and humans. Outside of sheep. <laughs> and sheep, of course, that's a, a, a artificially selected uh, organism. But uh, there's also this idea that Homosexuality may come with this idea of self-domestication, um, what, what, what I call peer domestication. I think uh, Sarah Verdi said, you know, if you put a hundred male monkeys on an airplane together, uh, that thing's definitely crashing. But if you put a hundred males together on an airplane, uh, human males, uh, you're going to be okay. And I would imagine the same thing with sheep. But uh, <laughs> um, and it's because it's because they're uh, domesticated by each other in order to tolerate each other in contexts that they otherwise wouldn't. Like uh, th- th- there's this claim that the difference between chimpanzees and bonobos has to do with uh, self-domestication, and what you see in bonobos is an uptick in homosexual behaviors that you do not see in chimpanzees. Uh, chimpanzee males, uh, when they get uh, excited or frightened, sometimes they'll uh, grab the testicles of the, the chimp next to them. But that's that's not that's not really a sexual act. But in, in bonobos, I mean, you see it, you see it as often as a greeting. Uh, female bonobos will you know rub up on each other and things like that. Um, so so I think I think there's I think there's a lot of levels to the question. You know, where where do homosexual behaviors come from? How, how are we different from animals in these regards? I mean, I, I'm I'm really excited to see to see where the answers go. Mm, mm. So, on uh, as yet unanswered question. This is a related question which Mike asked from Twitter. When discussions of Evo psych come up, there's significant focus on heterosexual relationships and dynamics. Totally understandable, heterosexuals are 95% of the population plus. But I'm curious if the existence of gay people complicates the picture at all. Uh, I think this kind of fits with a lot of what we've been talking about, about mate choice and things like that, versus sort of the larger social systems that people are part of. So the fact that we are a sexually reproducing species means naturally that like heterosexuality is going to be given prime focus, like by necessity, because that's how we reproduce. But we're a species that live in very complex social systems and with variable social roles and even variable mating patterns within the same society. So the focus on mate preferences, I think it, it does make it harder to understand like why you'd see the 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 same sex behavior social role right of of consistent only mating with with same sex individuals if you're looking at it solely through mate choice for fitness it doesn't make much sense and then you end mm-hmm. up having to kind of stretch 
like the ideas of uh, that's why uh, I mean Cody mentioned um, EO Wilson and stuff you end up having to stretch the idea of inclusive fitness to sort of assume like oh well they they must be benefiting their family somehow right through their inclusive fitness that they they care for family members more maybe that's why they, they make up for the fertility loss and the math for that tends not to make sense to me it seems hard to make up that mm-hmm. that fertility cost but again we're a social species we're a cooperative species we cooperate in interdependent ways with even unrelated individuals and in ways that benefit our own fitness that are not necessarily clear so even having like gay family members can benefit your lineage economically perhaps or socially or simply or you know having another good forager or you know if even if, particularly if you're like in a society that's heavily reliant let's say on female subsistence or where there is a skewed sex ratio in favor of men uh, let's say many of of same sex behaviors or or transgender social roles make a lot of sense within the social system. Now that's a different question from what are the motivations individuals have to to engage in behavior same sex or or heterosexual or or whichever. But it's something that always has to be kind of considered and it it's it's really hard to measure. You know, you you can it's easy to look at the number of kids someone has in a same sex relationship and talk about fitness, but the 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 impact, you know, um consistent same-sex behavior can have on a social group or a lineage or fitness is is unclear and it's i think it'll be a, a long time before a lot of these nuances can be really like teased out and figured out if only we were sheep <laughs> <laughs> wake up sheep <laughs> <laughs> i never knew we had so much in common a few more general questions about the discipline before we draw this to a close Victor from Twitter asks, what emerging work in your fields are you most excited about? What in your studies correlates most to the so-called culture wars? So that's two questions. Let's take them one by one. Oh, yeah. So, well, there's a couple things I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Some stuff I've actually worked on for the uh, Human Systems and Behavior Lab at Penn State. So I was working on a project related to war rituals across culturally. So a lot of times uh, in warfare, you will have specialized like, you know, warrior priests or prophets who will read omens and to predict, you know, future battles. And and these uh, omens can even help kind of coordinate, you know, when a battle will take place and things like that. They'll do divinatory rituals looking at like you know, cow intestines and stuff to, to to predict the future and to predict when they need to be patrolling their borders more or raid and stuff like that. So a lot of this work on the sort of the cultural evolution of war rituals that we've been doing is something I've really been excited about. And there's one other project, um, and this is, I guess maybe this fits with the cultural war stuff, but uh, we're looking at the sort of ultimate evolutionary reasons for male violence against women and domestic violence across cultures. So there was this really um, important theoretical paper by Barbara Smuts, I think in the 1990s. It's called like male aggression against women in in an evolutionary context or something like that. And she lays out a lot of hypotheses about when male violence, you'd expect it to occur. 
for males trying to, you know, control female sexuality, prevent them from leaving or to induce mating and things like that. And also context where you'd expect it to occur less often. So for example, if the woman has a lot of her kin around, the prediction is that there'll be less uh, domestic violence. So we've been using some of the biggest uh, cross-cultural databases available to try and investigate that and see, you know, whether those predictions hold up. So those are two things I'm really uh, excited about going forward. Uh, I think I think I'm excited about the application of uh, agent-based modeling to a lot of uh, uh, cultural evolution predictions. Um, so, can we see the most likely path that different things took through these simulations? And and yeah, linking in with culture wars. I mean, behavioral genetics is always interesting, um, but uh, if anything, it's the most controversial of any behavioral science. Um, I mean, we now we now have ancient genomes where we can see, you know, how long how long have these traits been in the population? Uh, where did they arise from? Were they actually adaptive? Um, and a lot of it hinges on uh, making these behavioral correlations between uh, genes in current populations and behaviors that we see now. And I don't, I really, I don't think there's anything more controversial than that. I mean, we, we it's all over the place right now uh, with people arguing over it. But um, I, I, I think it's, I think it's exciting times for this research, and I, I hope it doesn't get snuffed out for whatever reasons. Mm, I hope, so. I hope so too. What are the biggest misconceptions about your fields? I would say my field is evolutionary anthropology. So I don't think that's a field where there's a lot of uh, popular ideas about it. Like, I don't know that, I don't know how popular it is in the, you know, I guess public imagination or, or whatever it is. I do think one thing that is important that's not recognized is something I mentioned uh, at the beginning where people think evolutionary psychology is like the only evolutionary social science. Or, I mean, they obviously know about evolutionary biology and things like that. But when it comes to humans, I think there's this idea that like evolutionary explanations for human behavior are just some, you know, assertion about mate choice or something like that, rather than there being a huge body of very diverse, often complicated and rigorous work with massive sample sizes and debate and stuff like this on evolutionary explanations for behavior that go well beyond mating and, and take into account the cognitive underpinnings of religion and mythology and, and other subtle aspects of you know foraging behavior and economic relationships and everything. So I think that's one thing I'd like to see uh, more widely recognized is is the utility of evolutionary approaches and how uh, diverse they are and and how many you know different frameworks you can incorporate like behavioral ecology, you know sociobiology, evolutionary psychology, cultural evolution, all this stuff to understand the evolution of human behavior. Could you give me an example of where you think an evolutionary approach would be very helpful? I think you, so a perfect example to me is the fact, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, I think that men are more violent across cultures than women. That is, they, they commit more lethal violence, let's say. They're more likely to kill than women are. And even though there's a lot of uh, variation in terms of the, the total rate, like some societies have a homicide rate that is a thousand times higher 
than other societies, right? But what those what those societies all have in common is that it's mostly males committing the homicide. So while I'm a fan of like behavioral ecology and of of using socio-ecological variables to understand the the differences in homicide rates, this is something you can only understand, right? The the male bias in this behavior if you're taking if you're thinking about evolutionary differences between males and females and even more invariant aspects of evolutionary psychology. So like societies have been highly variable in their success in socializing people to be either violent or nonviolent, but they've never been successful in socializing women to be equally violent as males. So mm. this is why you need both, right? The, the, the socioecology and culture and all that, but some things are just impossible to understand if you're not looking in an evolutionary way, as well as even an evolutionary psychology way and thinking about evolved, you know, instincts or, or predilections for certain behaviors and things like that. But do you think there are ways in which understanding those evolutionary roots of violence among men could help us to make men less violent? Yeah, absolutely. But this is this is where the, the socioecology part comes in. So I, I wrote a piece for Colette actually on this called the Behavioral Ecology of Male Violence. And one of the things I talked about was I talked about polygyny in, in that piece too, and how in polygynous societies, there tends to be more violent male-male competition for women, more male violence competing for women. And when, when you keep looking at the context where males are violent, it's overwhelmingly where their fitness interests are threatened or where they're trying to pursue more mating opportunities or increase their like status or wealth. So I argued in that piece also that something like the war on drugs, you know, criminalizing drug use and prostitution and things like that, regardless of the costs or the benefits in many other domains about those policies, and, and reasonable people can debate any number of, of facets of those ideas, one implication I get from a lot of behavioral ecology is that when you don't have ways of resolving conflicts over resources like that. So like this for us, the state, you know, we, we have nation states that criminalize murder and theft and all this. They protect property rights. So like if someone steals from you, you have institutions you can utilize to get your property back or get recompensated. You don't have to go and kill that person or go and get revenge and get your, your stuff back. So with, with drugs and with prostitution, these are markets where they're criminalized. These markets are controlled and run by criminal organizations that use violence to enforce property rights. So part of what I argued based, based just on pretty uh, simple evolutionary behavioral ecology principles that having the state protect property rights in those domains to enforce contracts and reduce the need to aggressively protect property might reduce violence in, in those domains. And so I think, you know, when you look at the, the primate data and when you look at human behavior and things like that, violence manifests in ways that make a lot of sense, where people, they, they exist where people can benefit from them, where there's signaling function to, to showing strength, um, things like that. So having effective state institutions that reduce the incentives for violence ha have seemed to me to be the best ways to reduce it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Cody, did you want to add something? I've been trying to think through what 
what the public might misconceive, but it feels like there are a lot of misconceptions from within the field within one another. So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that people don't believe that their behavior can be shaped by natural selection because the mind is some emergent property that requires explanations of its own outside of any kind of evolutionary or Darwinian framework. And the major problem is that a lot of the people advocating for this are anthropologists. You know, people have been working on this for years, um, and and it seems like there's a lot of cultural anthropologists that won't get on board with the concept uh, for whatever reasons, whether it's like, you know, they really want to cling on to these ideas of free will. I mean, and you can still have free will while admitting that your behaviors are shaped by natural selection or all these other things, but it it just seems like to me uh, the biggest misconception is that behavior is not predictable and you can't make predictions of it based on evolution. Uh, You most certainly can. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to be the same, which is pretty obvious. I think we all know that. Um, Or that your behavior is 100% genetic, like, you know, everything you do is being coded by a protein. Every thought is, you know... But I I, I do think that's the biggest misconception is that we can't make generalizations about human behavior. A slightly related question is, uh, Saloni posed this question on Twitter. Are there certain topics that are controversial within the field or particularly difficult to study? So are there some topics that you just do not touch because you feel they are too controversial? and which you feel would nevertheless be worthwhile to study? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, of course, a number of them you can't even mention because you'll get in too much trouble. But <laughs> You can mention it here. I won't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, within anthropology, there's so many subdivisions of, of people fighting with each other over you know, which theoretical framework is best if any theoretical framework is good. So so it seems like almost anything you say in anthropology can be pretty controversial. I mean, concepts as simple as, you know, cultural evolution, that there's explanations to your behavior because, you know, it, it, it helps your culture out in some way. Uh, those have been found controversial by many people because they seem to think when you say that one culture is more effective than the other uh, at doing some task or, or, or solving some coordination problem, they seem to think that this idea of ranking is uh, assigning value to it. And it's not. I mean, it, it's descriptive. It's really just trying to explain, you know, why why do we see this here and not there? Or why do we see them in both of them? Um, but, but a lot of people find that to be an issue. And, and, and this is something that's plagued anthropology uh, since the early 20th century, late 19th century. I mean, um, it's at least in American anthropology's foundations uh, that, you know, we, we shouldn't be comparing societies at all. But, you know, and I think, I think that's going to carry through until the field is over. That might be, if I can leap in here, that might not be part of your remit as, a, as an academic or a researcher to be judgmental. And you are... The idea is that you are studying the culture, so you are describing uh, the culture and its effects. But I, I certainly would, I, 
I would hesitate to do a lot of ranking of cultures in totality. So I wouldn't, for example, say Pakistani culture is intrinsically worse than British culture. Yeah, but never. I would still I would still rank certain cultural phenomena as bad and others as good. So for example, gang raping women because they they glanced at the sacred flutes in the men's house right. is seems to me like a a bad cultural practice. Right, right. So I think this is a great topic and it, it is a very difficult one. So anthropologists in general, I, I think it's fair to say they're they're often very careful about not wanting to denigrate other societies and particularly the societies they study. And that's understandable because, you know, they make friendships with, with the people there and they, they don't want to give a negative portrayal of them to the world any more than you want to like badmouth your friends in public or something, mm-hmm. you know, so it's totally understandable. But the problem is it, it, it leads to a lot of, I think, self-censoring and kind of misleading portrayals of human societies because precisely because people don't want to denigrate them. So I write a lot about about men's cults, about headhunting and warfare and ritual mutilation and cannibalism and dysphoric rituals and all this all this other stuff. I don't come at it trying to denigrate any society, but I also don't come at it trying to like I'm not going to pretend like these aren't real things that were prominent and prevalent and important in human societies. I think you you really don't even need to make like too many moral judgments. I think as an anthropologist, when you're discussing other societies, you know, people can come to their own conclusions. And if you, if you cover it responsibly, I think people will come to the right conclusions. Like, yeah, you shouldn't, you know, cut people's heads off and put them on display in the modern Western world. But that was a tradition that existed all over the world, including in European countries uh, Mm -hmm. throughout a significant part of our history. So I, I just I don't like the misleading portrayals in whichever direction, whether that's denigrating a society or romanticizing it. And I think in anthropology, it's fair to say that there's there's a greater trend towards not wanting to denigrate other societies while at the same time being very critical of Western social practices and institutions. And I sort of feel like you should try and be consistent. Like if you want to take a portrayal of culture, that culture is cultures are often coercive and and harmful and things like that, you know, that's, that's totally fine. Or if you want to take a portrayal emphasizing the good stuff too, but people find it very easy to fall into the, you know, this is my moral system. These are my preferred societies. These are the things I like. These are the things I don't like. And there's a, there's highly variable quality when that happens. So that's how you get anthropologists like Richard Lee not in my view not giving sufficient attention to a lot of the harmful stuff because it's it it conflicts with their moral perspective of of hunter-gatherer societies. So it's not something they can actually acknowledge. It's very Rousseauian this oh, vision yeah. of the noble savage hunter-gatherer societies. Yeah, and I, I think it comes from like I I don't doubt the the good intentions, you know. Like I, I I'm sure it, it comes from the right place a lot of times. You know, people look at their society and they don't like, yeah, I don't know, injustice or inequality and things like that. So they kind of think like, oh, let's find somewhere where people have it figured out. And then they look to these hunter gatherer societies and then they read kind of misleading portrayals that emphasize a very small part 
And then it's like, oh, this is how we should be. Everybody's sharing and cooperative and happy and stuff. And that's not reality. You know, people, people have conflicts of interests, cultural institutions develop that, that hurt people and that enforce that maintain divisions and, you know, people fight over plenty of things. So I just understanding human behavior, you, you have to, I think you have to put away your, your moral preconceptions a little bit when you look across cultures, you can't just kind of go off of what you want to be true or what, what feels right. And I think that, that it goes for the, the sort of the ranking society thing too. It's like that, that would be a, it, it's dangerous in my view to deny the reality. And it's also dangerous to give a excuse for why you can kind of impose your morals or your mm. preconceptions on the data. And a lot of, in my view, cultural anthropologists in particular are kind of unapologetic about doing that. They, they view it as a, a sort of activism, which they, which they, I can understand why they think it's important. They think they're advocating for a, a better, just world, but it leads to poor scholarship in, in my opinion. Yeah. I think activism generally does. I mean, I feel those, those two things need to be separated, even though they are both worth worthy things both worthy activities. But I, I absolutely agree with Alice Drager on this, that there needs to be a clear division between scholarship, which should be objective, and activism, which is championing the rights of certain groups or championing certain issues which you feel are important. Yeah, absolutely. And I will add one thing, though. I think part of why it's so helpful and important for scientific disciplines to have uh, strong standards for what constitutes evidence and really strong norms about how research is conducted. Um, part of why that's so important is that it actually, in my view, it reduces the issues that can come about with that sort of motivated reasoning and activism, things like that, because there are standards imposed immediately. So even if you're coming at it from a biased perspective, the field kind of imposes a sort of rigor. So to give an example, I'm a, I'm a big fan of a lot of 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, like f explicitly feminist anthropology, um, particularly on the, the sociobiological side, evolutionary anthropology, uh, you know, uh, feminist primatologists like Sarah Hardy and Barbara Smuts and uh, scholars like that. And so they're, they're, they were using longstanding evolutionary principles. They were taking part in a robust scientific debate. Their ideas were challenged. Now they, they came at it from a political perspective, but their work is rigorous and very informative. So to me, you know, the, the, the constraints that, that science and scientific practices can impose actually reduces the degree to which the activism stuff is a problem. Where it becomes a huge problem, in my view, is where the standards are very lax. Because then you can kind of, it's almost like having a blog where you can just say what your political views are and repeat them. And that's that constitutes mm -hmm. evidence. But in a tradition with, you know, diversity of thought and rigor, I'm actually not too. I'm not as worried about the the political stuff in that context. It's just where where the standards are loose that I think it's a big problem. Thank you so much, both of you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You've been incredibly generous with your time. Glad to be here. And with your with your patience, because I'm not very well informed on this topic. It's as you can probably tell from how much hedging I'm doing, even more than usual. No, the questions were really good, uh, and I thought this was a really good discussion. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who sent in questions from Twitter.
And thank you so much, both of All you. Right, see you around. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.